Welcome to 27 Speaks, a weekly podcast with the staff of the Express News Group who share their insights into the latest stories making news on the east end of Long Island. 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. And we are recording. Yes, we are. And I don't have Annette here to remind us that what we're doing here, we're here for 27 Speaks, which is our weekly podcast here with the Express News Group. And uh, this week we have a topic that's been of big importance recently, especially in the western half of Southampton Town. But I think it's going to be a topic of conversation that's going to be of increasing importance throughout the the South Fork as we move forward. So uh, I'll start by introducing our staff who are here. I'm Joe Shaw. I'm the executive editor of the Express News Group. The voice you've already heard introducing us was Bill Sutton. Hey, Bill. Hey, Joe. I'm Bill Sutton. I'm the managing editor of the Express News Group. We also have Brendan O'Reilly with us. Hey, Brendan. Hi, Joe. Hi, everybody. My name is Brendan. I'm the deputy managing editor. And we have the always charming Kitty Merrill, who is joining us, uh, who covers Town Hall for us. And she's going to be part of the conversation today. Hey, Kitty. Hi, Joe. I'm Kitty Merrill, and I am the government reporter for the Express News Group, Western Side. There you go. (laughs) And also Southampton Town Hall. And we have two guests with us uh, for this podcast. We have Southampton Town Councilman John Bouvier. Hey, John. Hey, Joe. Uh, yeah, John Bouvier, Southampton Town Councilman. I'm liaison to our sustainability committee. Um, liaison to quite a few things, but um, good to be here. Good to have this conversation. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us. And and Lynn Arthur of the Sustainability Committee. Hi, Lynn. Do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, thanks for inviting me. Um, I'm also the founder of uh, Peak Power Long Island, which is a not-for-profit. I serve um, a couple of municipalities doing... Um, renewable energy, energy efficiency uh, programs and policies helping, you know, the municipalities uh, conduct uh, public education on those things. We appreciate you taking the time to be with us because we we need to have a conversation about this. We're, we talk about it quite a bit around the office, and I think clearly people are talking about it in the community. But Kitty, tell us a little bit about why we're here. What is BESS and what is the conversation that's taking place right now in Southampton Town? Well, uh, BESS is, is, stands for Battery Energy Storage System. And um, it's, it's a relatively new technology out here. Uh, that's, we've had two applications. One is, one is in process and has been going on. That's the Canal Southampton Battery Storage application. And then there's another application that's in the pre-application stage. So they haven't submitted anything formal yet, but it's on the western side of Hampton Bays. Both are in Hampton Bays and the community members are really, uh, for lack of a better term, freaking out about it. There's an extraordinary amount of fear and concern. But I think the thing that might be the most useful before we get into that part is if we asked um, John, if John could tell us why, why, would anybody want to, ha- why would there be a battery energy storage system? What is their purpose? 
Well, that's a that's a good question because I think to start this conversation, that's the right question to ask. Uh, battery storage systems are intrinsic to our uh, need to distribute renewable energies. Um, that means wind, solar, uh, tidal, a whole different vast group of of, of energy sources that we need to have here. And the overriding reason, um, we're, we're, we're trying to think ahead. We're trying to think about the effects of global warming and sea level rise on our community. We're a coastal community, and we're already beginning to see the, the effects of this. Um, we're starting to see saltwater intrusion in our aquifer. Um, and all those, for that reason, batteries are able to store energy that's being produced uh, say, use solar as an example, uh, during the day you get energy, uh, at night you don't. Uh, and we are able to store that energy uh, and be able to use it uh, consistently through a day or time period. But also, uh, in addition to that, uh, we talk about microgrids and we talk about ways of providing power if we have a coastal storm and we've lost our, our grid that we're able to put this energy into small parts of the grid, particularly to help hospitals, first responders, uh, and any organization that needs to have that in order to, to keep functioning during a storm or even a coastal evacuation. And and John, why is it that, that um, private industry is the one applying for and building these, these systems? Why isn't it light bar? Why isn't it... Um, you know, uh, the municipalities or, or the power authorities, why has this become a private industry thing? Well, it, it, it isn't. In fact, um, the the utilities are able to put in uh, systems, uh, whether battery systems, substations or whatever, uh, that we have as a municipality have no control over. And I feel that it's absolutely critical that the municipality itself is able to impose under home rule, some of, of, of that, uh, the ability to control what types of systems go in, where they go in, all those kinds of kinds of questions that are asked. So, um, you know, we do have on occasion, a utility can just put something on their property and we have virtually no control over that. From my, my standpoint, having someone that's directly accountable for a system and its operation and maintenance, uh, I think, is is important for a municipality to have. Lynn Arthur, you wanted to say? Yeah, I would also add that the utility, and not a lot of people really understand this, the utility is not allowed to own power generation. They have to competitively bid it. And so what they do is they create a tariff, which is basically the terms and conditions surrounding how they would make an acquisition. And in this case, uh, LIPA um, is, you know, they put a bid out and they ask for a certain amount of capacity of battery storage technology. And then all, you know, all developers who then can, you know, they're creating a market and developers can come and respond to that. So then it's up to developers to figure out where are their parcels that are opportune to install these systems. And one of the things that the PSEG, uh, you know, the subcontractor that manages day-to-day uh, -day operations, they have something called an interconnect map. And they these developers have access to this interconnect net map. And so they might find a parcel that's uh, the right size uh, that is in a reasonable proximity 
to where there are uh, cables that they can interconnect into the grid, but that particular location might be too costly. The interconnect charge might be too costly to, that would make the project economically feasible. It's one of the things that's, that's uh, interesting about these two projects is the canal um, battery energy storage is right near a substation. So their connecting is, is facilitated that way. The one on the other side of Hampton Bays on the Western side, which is, it has just a funny, it just goes by the number of the address. I can't remember the name of it. It's across the street from Best Lane, which I think is kind of interesting. <laughs> yeah, that's ironic, isn't it? But they have to actually go ahead and build a substation on top of their yeah. facility because they're not located near one. And while people have, you know, people have said, why can't they just go and put it at the um, at the landfill in North Sea? But the, you know, it, it turns into what Lynn just said: the connecting, the connecting is just. And I'm not well, feasible. If I could jump in, I, that's a really good point. We, you know, you guys are aware we're also implementing CCA, uh, which is community choice aggregation. And the goal is to be able to provide a lower price per kilowatt hour to our constituents. Right now, we're paying the fourth highest pa uh, price per kilowatt hour there is in the country. And it's largely driven by almost 90% of the electricity that comes to us uh, comes to us from fossil fuel driven sources, which is exactly what we we don't want. Um, you know, fossil fuels are the are the key to all of this. And as I mentioned before, the the issues, the climate change issues that are affecting us are directly impacted that. So electricity is about 25 percent of that total emissions. And uh, to put that in context, uh, we get most of our breathable oxygen from the oceans, almost 70%. So there's a big reason um, to, to protect that uh, so that we you know, can protect for future generations. It, it's just interesting to me that we um, were limited by the, the way the grid is structured to where we can interconnect to Lynn's point. And under CCA, um, we also have something called uh, community distributed generation. And that allows us to put solar panels and things like that, uh, solar arrays or wind turbines or whatever it might be into those areas that are brownfield or Superfund sites, or like we are doing in uh, North Sea over a transfer station, we're putting a almost a five megawatt system in there. That energy can go directly back to us and can go directly back to the constituents. Um, mm. when, you're, when you're forced to go a, a distance from an interconnect point, uh, there's a big loss in energy, not only economics, but the loss in energy in that transmission. So these are all, all these factors are, are, are really important to consider. We're lucky in that... Um... I don't know if he is, but uh, John Councilman Bouvier is an engineer by profession and he has worked with best sites. Um, so he has a little bit more of a working knowledge than almost all of us, almost everybody. And John, I wonder if you can um, describe for us what they what people might expect to see at that site. 
A best site, essentially what you're going to see is a containment um, facility. Um, they're designed, the systems are designed, in particular the one that we're talking about or you're talking about at Canal is uh, based on lithium phosphate batteries, which burn at a very low temperature if, if there is, is a fire. Uh, I think that's something that concerns residents a lot. And, and I appreciate this opportunity to be able to to set the record straight as to how and to address those concerns that people might have. Uh, you know, a good example, East Hampton just had a fire in their system and uh, the system was is self-contained, has its own fire suppression system, and it works perfectly. Uh, matter of fact, it worked so well that by the time the fire department got there, the fire was out. Um, the, the, these are really designed under really rigid specs. Uh, it's not like a, an e-bike. These are designed under UL standards. It's United Laboratory Standards, and they're based on the national uh, Fire Protection Association guidelines, uh, which is to have the fire suppression, separation from the environment, uh, to, to uh, uh, how do I, like a caisson system so that you have uh, heat and fire protection all the way around it. And uh, basically, it's a big gray box from the outside. That's a, John, you made the point. You made the point. I really want to stress this is not the same thing as lithium ion batteries that are in bikes and, and uh, that there have been some issues. You know, you've I've seen the the pictures from the, the TV stations in New York of the bikes the charred bikes that that are creating fires and that this, this is a completely different type of battery right uh it, it is to some degree but it's more about how you charge it and what you do with the battery you have you know specific charging stations so batteries need to be charged carefully and they need to be discharged carefully and quite often you have people that you know want to make a little money and and uh, and somebody buys an e-bike that has somebody put another battery on it that's way too big. And that's largely what's caused the problem is that people aren't using the charging stations as appropriate. It's it's that's that's a big issue. And that's a large part of what's driving the uh, the issues in New York City with e-bikes is switch over to that. Um, they they aren't designed to the same certainly to the same UL standards and fire protection they're they're whatever is cheapest because somebody is making money from it and and they're know, also not tested and they're right? not tested uh you know and I compare that to city bike which did have a fire in New York City and they made their conversions and they really understood the issue and are working to correct that so you know my hat's off to them because they do the, the the proper testing. They do what's right and what they really need to do. And it's unfortunate that some people um, don't. Local support comes from the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Cordoraro. In these trying times, working full-time for their clients and the public interest, providing strong advocacy and attentive counsel, be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com 27 Speaks is brought to you by Sag Harbor Books and Southampton Books, independent bookstores located in the villages at 7 Main Street in Sag Harbor and 16 Hampton Road in Southampton. They buy books, collections, libraries, individual titles. Very easy process. They handle everything. Do you have books to sell? Call or email today or visit SouthamptonSagHarborBooks.com. 
Now hiring booksellers at both locations, including office positions. I got to ask though, John, we did already have a fire at the facility in East Hampton, which suggests that this this is going to happen at times. I mean, it's it's not, I mean, I'm trying to decide whether that was a good or a bad thing because we've already had a fire at a battery storage facility now, so we know what they're like. But then again, it just goes to show that this is a, this is a legitimate concern that people have. It's a very rare happening. You know, nobody can say that you don't have accidents. Two cars with gasoline run into each other, you have fires that this is a rare thing. I don't know what particular type of battery East Hampton has, but I do know that its fire suppression system obviously worked very well. Um, I don't know. I, I just don't have the details of that. But globally, um, there's been very few accidents. Um, we have some data that was supplied uh, to the planning board. The number of projects um, it says 466, of which there are only 11 incidents and there were no fatalities. But were they all with the same battery? Well, that we don't have. We don't know. Yeah, because what we're what we're hearing, what I keep hearing is when people are coming and stepping up uh, to talk, and these are people who have done a lot of, you know, community members who have done a great deal of research but what they're finding, and they're, these are the things where the fire burns for day, you know, like facilities and the fires burn for days. And my understanding from John is that's a completely different, the lithium phosphate versus lithium. Go ahead. Go ahead, Lynn. <laughs> so let's let's put a finer point on this. The, the two battery chemistries we're talking about are lithium iron phosphate and lithium lithium nickel manganese cobalt. The one in the proposed system for Hampton Bays is lithium iron phosphate. Um, there's a YouTube video uh, that I can give you, a, you, know, you can Google it, um, but it, 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 if it should catch on fire, it will only heat up to 200, the cell itself will only heat up to 285 degrees, that's tested. The heat- Celsius or-, or Fahrenheit. 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 Okay. It, it will not break down the separator that's designed to with the, the separator that between these cells is in this case, in this one, in this particular test was designed to withstand up to 480 degrees. So there's, there's no risk of if one cell should catch on fire that it's going to run away, you know, thermal runaway is the term, that it's going to spread to the others and cause a massive fire. The other technology, nickel magnesium cobalt, on the other hand, um, in this particular uh, uh, test, uh, heated up to 700 degrees, but it could burn up to 1,000 degrees. Mm. And if the separator is melting at 480 degrees Fahrenheit, you know, the result is obvious. In, in this case, we're talking about lithium iron phosphate. So when people, you know, I feel my heart goes out to these people who are, you know, they're stressing out because they're being given incomplete, you know, there's incomplete and inaccurate information that's been allegedly, you know, researched by other, you know, friends and neighbors. And it's understandable because, you know, in order to really get your, wrap your head around the details here, 
you either have to be a geek like us, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or you have to have, you know, studied it, or you need to know where to go look, right, to get this information. Because this information, unfortunately, is not readily available. So I can understand how they would draw conclusions, you know, from things they've read in the news or that they've shared on social media. And that's that's part of the lear the learning curve here is really important, right? I mean, I think we're all in, in violent agreement over we could do a hell of a lot of better job of just explaining what this is and you know what to expect because the issues that are being you know communicated by uh, over this one one uh, application are very consistent with what what's happening all over New York State. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I I should add also that. You know, this battery type is really ubiquitous. I mean, we have uh, if uh, about four, four and a half percent of the U.S. homes have solar panels on them right now. Um, that's about 2.7 million homes, roughly. Um, chances are when you go to uh, go drive by that house, you're going to that house. The, the people in it will have a, uh, a battery system as well, which is available to, for homeowners. And that battery system uh, is the same type of battery that we're talking about. Um, and, and they've been there for quite a while. We've had this uh, residential storage, uh, battery storage uh, legislation that's been in the town for quite a while. And uh, that's sort of typical, you know, people want to save the energy that, that their panels make and it helps them with their bill. And you know, Lynn could, could expound on that at some point if if, if you want to hear the nerdy side of us and how how all that works. We are all about the nerdy side. That's that's what the podcast is for. Well, yeah. in fact, there are four thousand systems on the NYSERDA website. There's a map you can pull up, and there are four thousand battery storage systems in residential homes right now. As John said, most of them are paired with solar because the NYSERDA rebate requires. You get a third off the cost of the battery if you pair it with solar. So that's why NYSERDA keeps track of where, you know, they they have the addresses. There's a map you can actually see, you know, physically where these things are installed. But they are pervasive. And, and by the way, um, they're going to be more pervasive because, you know, there are things coming, there are changes coming in the rates next year that are going to cause the uh, further um uh, economic uh, justification for battery storage systems in residential properties. I wondered about that. I was going to ask this, this is going, this is really the tip of the iceberg, right? These, mm -hmm. these facilities I think are going to be proposed in a lot of different places. And John, I want to go back to something you said that I find kind of interesting. You said uh, that having, uh, and I don't want to put words in your mouth. If I say this wrong, please correct me. But by having um, private companies that are really constructing some of these facilities they have to go through the town the town has some say in where they go and so so that's you know that's preferable in some ways but i would like to point out that utilities generally don't have to do that because nobody wants any of these facilities of any kind of of electric electric stuff near them i mean if if you were going to put a a power facility beside me and I could go to town hall and complain about it, I probably would. Uh, and so utilities have sort of gotten this opportunity to bypass local control for that reason. So it's sort of a double-edged sword, isn't it? It, it is. Uh, and it is a learning curve. And there's no doubt about that. 
but there's only one way that I know of uh, to be guaranteed that you have the ability to affect an installation. Um, you know, we have PSEG, the utilities on occasion will just put something there and, and it takes us a while to find out what it is. And I think, in fact, it's a balance of both. Um, the utilities have a, an absolute need for storing power, particularly at peak times during the day. You know, at one point, they could not even make the the goals for electric power, and they had to contract with uh, fossil fuel driven generators, uh, people who had them and that and pump that their needs for for mat meeting the needs of the consumption during peak hours. So I, I, you know, and on top of that, you have the there's a state goal and there's a certainly a national trend that we're trying to fight a, a global issue and we we need to do our part. Uh, and we have a mandate to do that. And, you know, the town work, is working with NYSERDA. I think one place that and one reason one reason I enjoy this kind of conversation is that we're able to, to dispel some of the kind of myths that come out and the, and helps help the concerns of, of residents so uh you know when they when they hear information and and they they see something and it, it goes against what's what's actually happening so I, I think at the end of the day it's it's a combination of both um you know land is not is scarce here to be to you you know to put things on and ideally you'd love to be able to put a system and and there are other areas around the town uh where that's possible to some degree at some at at, uh, at certain scales but um you, you didn't put words in my mouth joe i think uh, I, but i do think it's a combination of both uh ultimately uh, i i'm somebody i you know I, I like to know what's happening before rather than after um that's just me so you mentioned that there's incentives to get batteries with your solar panels right so we have commercial industry here going to build a best system and the neighbors freak out because they don't want it near them they think it's unsafe but at the same rate the next door neighbor of every one of those individuals could put in a whole house battery tomorrow and they're not going to stop that. They don't have the means to stop that. You're allowed to have a whole house battery. I see Facebook ads all the time that I could get a Tesla roof with a whole house battery thrown in. So these things are going to be everywhere. They're not just going to be on isolated sites. Yes, it's one battery. So the people that fear the, the thermal runaway are, I guess, less concerned about one battery. But one battery attached to a house seems... You know, it doesn't have uh, the any sort of distance from a residential neighborhood, right? So, you know, where's the fear coming from over just these energy storage systems that have 20 batteries compared to your next door neighbor having a whole house battery? Well, and it probably also, Brendan, to your point, it probably also doesn't have the same kind of monitoring. Right by any stretch of the imagination that, that the facility would have. And it doesn't have a fire plug planned to be on the same parcel either. Well, but also, you know, you have, you have requirements. Let's say you have an oil burner to heat your house. You know, that oil burner can't be in your house. It has to be behind metal doors. There's a whole bunch of things that, that the law requires in order to, to make it safe. And, uh, 
and it's the same thing with batteries but you know also batteries for homes are what three to maybe five to eight uh thousand watts um and the requirement for them is also to be external to be raised to you know there's a lot of protection that goes into how how and where those are installed and as far as i know there's there's no incident was and they're installed all over the country you know this in the hundreds of thousands and uh and it, it, it they work well this is Catherine Manu, and I'm the editor of the Sag Harbor Express and co-publisher with my husband, Gavin, of the Express News Group. Local community news matters more than ever, with misinformation spreading constantly across the internet. We live in the communities we cover. We are your neighbors, your friends, your family. We tell the good stories and, unfortunately, the bad. We focus on your triumphs and losses. But we can't do this without our subscribers. To subscribe, please visit 27east.com slash subscribe. And thank you for your support. Lynn, I wanted to ask, the fire in East Hampton at the at the battery storage facility there, I think one of the things that, that bothered a lot of people was they closed a road and they stopped traffic on the the railroad for a brief time uh, as a result of that fire, which seemed to feed into this idea that there was this need to take those precautions. So there must have been a concern about it becoming a bigger thing than it was. It didn't. But I think that that if if I hear what people in Hampton Bays are saying, it seems like that's sort of proof that we don't know what these things could do if they catch fire. So those precautions were taken. How do you how do you counter that? What what's the answer to that fear? Well, my understanding from talking to town staff, because I didn't talk directly to East Hampton, um, is that they did that they took that, they closed that whatever it was they did to stop traffic or close the roads temporarily, they did out of an abundance of caution because they, they weren't sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but as we all know, there were no toxic fumes that escaped. The The system did exactly what it was designed to do. It contained the fire. It contained, you know, whatever contaminants. Um, and it wasn't necessary. Mm-hmm. So it was just precautionary. But but what I would what I would this is an opportunity. Thanks for asking that question, because really what it's an opportunity to also point out that there is training required um, of the fire departments. And uh, I talked with another councilman uh, who also happens to be a, uh, in the fire department, and he it said that he learned that that training is only now, uh, you know, it's happening. You know, it's, it's happening, but it, it didn't have it hasn't it hasn't pervasively been conducted. So I guess, you know, there's a little bit of a learning curve um, that's required. And and that one incident is not necessarily indicative of what uh, Hampton Bay should expect, especially since, you know, we're at the beginning of an application. By the time that, uh, assuming that that project gets the go ahead, by the time it actually gets built, uh, the local department and all the other departments across the town of Southampton theoretically will have gotten the training that is required because this is not the only place. You know, these two applications are just the beginning. I mean, there, there's, you know, LIPA has applications for thousands of megawatts of battery storage um, 
you know, I, I don't know if you saw, there's a public hearing, in fact, a month from now about uh, a very, very large facility uh, adjacent to the Long Island Expressway. In fact, where the Long Island Expressway and Nichols Road intersects. Now, that's one of the most heavily trafficked, right, um, intersections yeah. on the whole East End. And and there's a, a battery facility there that's at least the same size as the one that's being uh, put in Hampton Bays that's planned right there adjacent to Long Island Expressway. So again, I, I got to believe that the fire, to, you know, the fire district um, and their testing facility in Yapank uh, has a plan to do that education. So we've used the term learning curve or, or, or something similar a bunch of times. Um, so let's pivot a little bit and, and talk about uh, a, a more moratorium. And, and Lynn, you, you said that the fire departments are just now getting the training. We've we've watched the planning board members um, express some confusion early on about what they're looking at with with these with these best facilities. Um, is, is it is is it prudent to to take some time to to tap the brakes a little bit? Um, to let let the fire departments catch up, let the planners catch up, let the community members catch up on on the technology. And I know, John, it's my understanding that you're not in favor necessarily of of, of the of the proposed moratorium. But but is there is there a logic to 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 slowing down a little bit or, or do we just need to to plow forward and, and learn as we go? Well, it, it it's not that we just put this law in place today. We put this law in place quite a few years ago in conjunction with consultation with uh, experts and other others uh, to develop that law. You know, no law is perfect, and I'm a big believer in abundance of caution. Uh, you know, the town is or has already, uh, uh, you know, in anticipation of the first application that we've actually had. That's under the law, they they started to go forward and they're meeting as we speak, uh, you know, in many, many different meetings to make sure that that our local fire departments, uh, that our town is sufficiently uh, uh, trained to to deal with those kinds of things. Um, I would think that, oh, you know, in the years going forward, that um, that would continue. And this is all based on the uh, National Fire Protection Association national law that was proposed to do that. And uh, so, I, you know, if there's any tweaking to the code that we need to do right now in the process of this current application, we can. I'm not necessarily not in favor of a moratorium, but I do know that we've put a lot of work into this code and I'm feeling pretty comfortable with it. Uh, but as I said, not all legislation is perfect. And, it, you you know, if we learn something along the way, we want to be able to make those changes. To me, the most important thing is what manufacturer you choose and what type of system you choose to put in place, because ultimately that's where the greatest safety comes from. Uh, the systems are designed with the right battery. They're designed with the right containment. They're designed with the right fire suppression system. And that proves out. Uh, the rest of it is, uh, well, anyway, that's the most important part of it all. And that's what we have now. Um, and I think that's why I like the fact that municipalities are able to make those decisions. And uh, uh so that we can assure ourselves and our, our residents that we have the best technology in place to do this this important work for 
us, our kids, our grandkids, and our constituents going forward into the future. Because it's, again, I can't stress how important this is that we're able to provide renewable energy uh, and get off the fossil fuel train that we've been on far too long. John, I've heard one specific concern that's been voiced by some folks in Hampton Bays, and it relates to the to the firefighters. And in case of a fire at one of these facilities, the idea that pouring a lot of water onto one of these facilities might damage the groundwater in some way. You've been a councilman who has spent a great deal of your energy working on groundwater issues. I suspect that's a primary concern of yours. Is there anything to that fear? Is that something that we need to be worried about? A simple answer is no. Uh, and again, that gets back to the design of the system. Uh, as, as was proven already, that the systems are self-contain all any of the toxins or anything that might emanate from a battery is contained inside a structure that can't be penetrated. Uh, and it's separated from groundwater. So you can put water on it and put it out. Uh, you can, uh, but you don't need that. What happens is you have a fire suppression system that will handle that uh, and will control those issues that people might be concerned about. I'm not concerned about it. Um, I'm more concerned about not having uh, the ability to store energy and to take advantage of renewable energy, because I think it's critical to the safety of our groundwater. I mean, ultimately, as I said, we're a, we're a coastal community and we're seeing sea level rise. And pretty soon, you know, everyone wants to preserve and protect this beautiful place and no one more than me. Uh, and I, th I see this as an absolute key to making that happen because I, I want to tackle the problem at its root and not just the symptoms. Uh, we have geologists right now that are up and down the southern coast of, of Long Island testing for salt water uh, because salt water intrusion is beginning to become a problem. And these are all small symptoms of a larger problem that's going to overwhelm us in the future if we don't do something now. John, the one thing when you guys were, uh, the town board was discussing the potential for uh, the passing a resolution or putting up a resolution about having a, a public hearing on a moratorium. And the one thing that Jay asked that I thought, Supervisor Jay Schneiderman asked that I thought was kind of interesting, and I wonder if it's possible, do you think if the, if the uh, legislation goes through some form of tweaking, would it be possible to say we only want the sodium phosphate batteries, not the other kind. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Is that a legal thing to do? That we only want the only permit only permitted in the town of Southampton are the slow burners or the low burners, and the big burners are not. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, and and there's more to that, you know. Initially, manufacturers made big investments in certain types of battery systems, and some of those battery systems could end up uh, where we might not want them. Uh, so we having control of that, I think, is absolutely critical that we have the best technology, that we're using low temperature battery systems. These are things that we should look at and are looking at. So, yeah, it's a big yes is the, the simple answer to your question.
So I know that one idea that conservationists and um, clean energy advocates have is to use recycled or second life EV batteries. So once these batteries are at 80% capacity of what they were originally able to do, they're no longer viable for electric vehicles, but they can be used in battery energy storage. But my understanding is that EV batteries are, you know, the bad type of batteries, and these aren't the kinds of batteries that we would want around here. So if the town does outlaw those batteries and somebody wanted to come along and do EV battery recycling as energy storage here, they wouldn't be allowed to do that. And maybe that's the correct move in terms of safety. But if you write it off entirely, you're also hurting this industry of recycling EV batteries, which otherwise are, are going to be landfilled. Well, yeah, absolutely. And in fact, many EV batteries now are are uh, lithium phosphate just for those reasons, particularly the Tesla battery um, and, and others. I believe Toyota is also and uh, I believe some others. So it really is a direct correlate, a direct transfer between a good, safe battery from a battery storage system to give it a second life, uh, either from a, a car uh, to go into a, I'm sorry, a, a new life from going from a car into a, uh, a home a storage system. That's really what's happening. Uh, there's also some some really good byproducts as a result of these types of uh, uh, battery chemistries where uh, they they are potentially able to be better have be recycled in a better way. Uh, because some of the constituent chemistry can be uh, uh, can be uh, created that uh, allows it to become inert, and it makes it certainly more recyclable. You know, it's still it's still an, an issue. There's no doubt about that. But you know, a lot of smart people are are working on that issue uh, and are are making pretty good progress on it. But one of the ways I think you make progress on that is to use those chemistries that are easily changeable at the at the point of recycling but give them one two you know tertiary uses of these systems is i think really a good way to recycle in the first place and uh then then do the responsible thing on, on how we recycle those materials uh some batteries you know if you guys have looked up batteries you'll know how many hundreds of types of batteries there are and some are very good and some aren't the the best system i worked on was actually for space station it was a nickel hydrogen battery under high pressure almost 2000 psi on the uh, on the pressure and uh, right now actually nasa just finished up about five years ago uh transferring changing that technology from the 70s uh, i'm dating myself to um to uh, uh, putting the lithium ion batteries, lithium phosphate, by the way, onto the space station. So the learning curve that we have is rapid. I know if you go to look for statistics online, you're, they're lagged. Uh, you know, some the market is defined as, you know, 52% growth year over year. It's big. But we want to be sure, at least in the town of Southampton, that we have the right batteries and the right technologies. I just want to jump on one thing you said, where you said Tef Tesla 
is now using a different battery because Tesla was brought up multiple times as a place uh, and a company that had some big honking fires in the past. So you, yep. you want to clarify, right? You're, uh, whatever they use that had those fires is not what they're working with now. No, and that that's the whole point. And, and that's the whole point about what we're talking about is that we're if we're able to be able to be in the decision stream as to what battery goes where and how, uh, we want to be sure that we have the right kind of battery uh, and and not something that's put there and then we discover it's put there. So that's the key. And, you know, people, there is a, there is a learning curve here. There's no doubt about it. Uh, but, you know, no manufacturer, I believe, wants to produce a battery system that's going to fail. They want to produce a battery system that's going to work and be safe and uh, for, for a myriad of reasons you can all imagine. I just want to I just want to add to um I, I too am not um in favor of a moratorium um but for some other some additional reasons um you know we've got this large offshore wind coming on online in the next 2 years um if you recall with the North Sea transfer station we issued the RFP and 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 the town uh, awarded that contract almost 2 years ago we have yet to put a shovel in the ground this is this is for the solar array Right. This is the solar array. It's 20 acres on the top of the landfill in, in North Sea. And oh, by the way, it is going to deliver 10% off your electric bill guaranteed for 20 years if you're selected in the lottery for about 500 households. That's big. That's one of the economic benefits. But um, and then the town gets lease revenue, but but notwithstanding. So that's an example of a project. Um, these projects take a long time to from the time that they are conceived getting through the permitting process, getting built and becoming operational. Doing a moratorium, even as short as 90 days, um, it, it makes Southampton geographically undesirable for developers to do projects. That's economic development, local jobs, money spent yeah. locally that we miss out on. And by the way, one of the reasons, you know, we, we kind of talked about this earlier, but one of the reasons for battery storage, which I, I mean, I, I studied this a few years back, is to displace peaker plants. The peaker plants, there's at least four or five. I have a map of them. If you're interested, I could share that with you, Kitty. But these are these are currently what's used in the summer when we have an extreme heat event. I don't know what a peaker plant is. A peaker plant uh, puts generates electricity into the grid on extreme heat days that typically occur between Memorial Day and Labor Day. In 2018, there were 10 record, 12 recorded events that were four hours in duration. And in 2019, there were 10. So that's roughly 40 hours every season where these peaker plants are, are fired up. Well, guess what? They run on diesel and gas. There are at least five of them, the one you probably you know, have seen uh, if you've been around as you know, here a few years is the one. They're they're just big generators, right? And they're on David White's Lane. Well, what do they do? They have no pollution controls. They they give yep. you a lot of black smoke. They smell toxic fumes and very noisy. So there's a study that I have um, that I can share where where they they studied. Let's displace all the peaker plants on Long Island. And they they uh, with battery storage systems. That's the and that has then become 
that's being adopted by LIPA. So, you know, wouldn't, you know, it, you know, in places that are that are acceptable, but we stand to uh, benefit tremendously from an air pollution, you know, and these these pecker plants are in very dense residential areas. You know, the, the, the people when I studied the map and I looked at this particular parcel, the homes that are complaining and I and I look, I get it, but they back up to the railroad tracks, which backs up onto 27. And they also are adjacent to us to a substation. I'm sorry, but you know this location is a great location to put a system. I don't think a moratorium is the answer. And I, I have to say, I don't want to dismiss the concerns of my friends and neighbors here in Hampton Bays because I think, and I don't need, yeah, yeah, there are legitimate fears about this. But one of the things I wanted to say was. One of the criticisms is, well, don't put these anywhere near where people live. But there's almost no place on the South Fork where you could put them where they're completely away from from residential areas at this point. And we have utility uh, properties scattered within uh, residential areas all the time. So that's I, I don't know that that's I don't know that it's doable to have a system where you say, well, we're not going to put them anywhere near the houses. I just don't think that's plausible. But I would ask you, Lynn, you know, the, the biggest obstacle to this, since there is sort of a public interest aspect to it, is getting over the hump with people where they're not afraid. There, there's a lot of fear. And I think a lot of the fear is fear of the unknown, fear of new technology, which is not, uh, I mean, it's rooted in real legitimate concerns. How do you, how are you going to get past that? Well, what we typically, what the town typically does, I can't speak for the town, but I can say based on my experience, um, occasionally they hire me as a subcontractor to do public education, um, but there are other groups that can do that work as well. Um, but there's kind of four ways, and 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 uh, events like today, what you're doing with this podcast is fabulous because the press plays a big role in public education, but there's also digital media. You know, there's having a website with the information, doing webinars. Um, but I personally feel that face-to-face, -face, you know, running meetings in locations and notifying the public, giving them the opportunity to ask questions and populating the stage with experts who can answer those questions, I think is the best way that people are the most comfortable. So we'll see, we'll see what happens. This isn't going to be the last time we have this conversation, I have a feeling. So no. we'll say, we'll say thank you to John Bouvier and Lynn Arthur for now, but uh, I suspect we will be back to have a conversation about this again in the not too distant future. So thanks for joining us today though, guys. Thank, thanks for having us. I really appreciate the opportunity. And yeah, it's a, it's a much bigger conversation and we just touched on segments of it, but uh, I, if, I, if you'll allow me, I just wanna make sure that the people listening understand that we hear them and, we're trying to meet those concerns by doing things just like this. Um, that's really important because it's a concern that for the most part uh, uh, may be unfounded. And if we can explain like we did today that we can help people understand that and understand that not all batteries are the same, not all systems are the same. Um, and you you can't make a, an equivalency between uh, you know a, a system ten years ago and a system today. Uh, I think that's really important to understand. 
uh, and myself in particular, I am absolutely committed to being sure that everything is done properly. And this is the way to do it, in my view. And I believe experts would feel the same way. I'm not a battery expert, mm -hmm. but I'm I, I I research myself to death sometimes, and there's a lot out there, and it's very hard to parse that because people, you know, it's it, it's easily misunderstood. Um, so I I hope we went a few a few ways forward to help people to meet their concerns. And uh, whenever you guys want to talk about this again, I'd love to love to join. It's a it's a great conversation. I think it's an important conversation. Thanks for having it with us. Thank you. Twenty Seven Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. Thank you for listening. Join us again next week to hear what's news on the East End. Our interlude flute music is by Allison O'Reilly. Our opening and closing theme music is Boysdale Blues, written and performed by the incomparable Judy Carmichael. Listen to Judy's weekly show, Jazz Inspired, airing on an NPR station near you, or go to jazzinspired.com. 27 Speaks is a weekly podcast produced by the Express News Group, which includes the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, 27east.com, and sagharborexpress.com. Find us on the websites or subscribe through Apple Podcasts.